0: Some years ago, a friend of mine was helping me move. I was living in an apartment at the time, and I had purchased a condo. So I was moving across town, and a friend of mine helped out. We loaded up everything on his truck, and on the top, we loaded up my mattress, and then we drove to the new place, and when we got there, everything was there except the mattress. And at that point, we realized that somewhere on one of the highways or byways of North Carolina my mattress found its eternal resting place and we were not about to go back looking for it for fear of what our punishment might be but what I appreciated in this situation was that my friend who was only volunteering to help made full restitution and purchased me a new mattress claiming that it was his fault for not strapping it in properly. As we look at these terms of restitution in the Old Testament today, you can judge for yourself whether, in this case, he needed to make restitution. As I said, he was only volunteering. It might be a little more clear, had he been a hired hand and he lost my mattress. But the key was that he made restitution. And this idea, the way we want to understand restitution is, in the more modern term, making things right, making it right with someone. To give you a little more context of where we are, at my home church, I've been preaching now for a number of months through the book of Exodus. We like to preach through books of the Bible, at least I do. I don't know if everyone does, but uh, I finished the Gospel of John over 65 sermons, and now I think we're 20 or so sermons into Exodus. And so we've been going through the law. In the previous chapter, we had the Ten Commandments. And as we're continuing here in chapters 21 and 22, we find these particular case law applications of the Ten Commandments. And what is uh, interesting here, what is going on is that while these commands are strange to us, we may say, in fact, that these certain civil laws have ceased to be with the with the end of the state of Israel, yet, the, as the confession says, the general equity of them remains. So the important principles we, we see behind these civil laws and case laws yet remain, that the Ten Commandments, those moral laws, abide forever, and do not go away. And we can understand those moral laws even better by seeing how it's applied in the case law. For example, we we can understand that it's really thou shalt not murder, not thou shalt not kill, because we see in some of these case laws that the uh, criminal is punished with the death penalty in certain circumstances. So therefore, the commandment not to kill cannot be Uh, 100% that there are exceptions to that. So these case laws are valuable to us. And so as we come to today's text, we find a number of case laws for these cases of restitution, what to do in these cases. And it primarily here now applies to the Eighth Commandment, thou shalt not steal. It had just gone through case laws with the commandment not to kill. Now we're going to look at case laws with the Eighth Commandment. And really, we can break this down in the, in the passage. It's not quite in the same order that I break it down mentally, but it, there's, an, there's four different situations in the text. There's negligence, accidents, lending and borrowing, and theft. And I, I ordered those sort of, um, well, not quite from least to greatest. Probably should have put accidents first. So you have negligence accidents, lending and borrowing, and theft. And what is supposed to happen in each of these cases when someone is found out? So I started with negligence because the text there starts with negligence. We read in, chapter, in verse 31, when a man opens a pit, or when a man digs a pit and does not cover it, and an ox or a donkey falls into it, the owner of the pit shall make restoration. He shall give money to its owner and the dead beast. Shall be his. So, in this case of negligence, the guilty party pays for the loss. He pays the victim for that loss. This person who is negligent has not properly safeguarded that which God has given him. I think sometimes we think of negligence and confuse it with an accident. And we sort of laugh about people, or people perhaps laugh about themselves and say they're absent minded. Well, There's cases here, the Bible shows us, where absent-minded can be a very dangerous thing. And it's more than just an accident. That's okay. And indeed, restoration is due. You need to make things right for what has been lost. I call this the you-break-it-you-buy-it principle. If you have been negligent, uh, bring your bull into the china shop. It was negligent, and you need to buy what you have broken. So negligence is where it starts, but we see quite a bit then about accidents. It continues into a case that's a pure accident. It says in verse 35, When one man's ox butts another so that it dies, then they shall sell the live ox and share its price, and the dead beast also they shall share. Here we see that no one is at fault is the is the idea here it's not there's no indication of of fault here it could have been in one person's field as well as the other and there was no knowledge ahead of time that a particular animal was dangerous the case could have very easily gone the other way person a's ox could have killed B's or B's killed a's we don't know why it has happened it is just an accident. And here it's interesting we find this. In the case of accident, they sort of share the burden. This is a nice safeguard in a time when uh, your livelihood was at stake, your life was at stake when your crops burned down or when your ox is destroyed. So they share in that loss. They both take the the proceeds of selling the live ox and the proceeds of selling the dead ox and they share it together. It is a way to minimize the impact that is being had. But as the text continues, we return briefly to the negligence. Verse 36 says, Or if it is known that the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past and its owner has not kept it in, he shall repay ox for ox and the dead beast shall be his. So here in the case of negligence, we have that ox for ox principle. And then we have more about negligence. If a man causes a field or vineyard to be grazed over, or lets his beast loose and it feeds in another man's field, he shall make restitution from the best in his own field and his own vineyard. If fire breaks out and catches in thorns, so that the stacked grain or the standing grain or the field is consumed, he who started the fire shall make full restitution. We Remember, it's that term that we'll be looking at today, restitution, that idea. So there's the case of negligence, there's the case of accidents, and now the case of lending and borrowing. Verses 14 and 15, if a man borrows anything of his neighbor and it is injured or dies, the owner not being with it, he shall make full restitution. If the owner was with it, he shall not make restitution. If it was hired, it came for its hiring fee. So in this case, the restitution is much like the situation of negligence. If someone has borrowed something and loses it or destroys it, it is sheep for sheep, ox for ox. So those are the three cases, but it's really ultimately getting to this primary situation of theft. This is why I say the worser case Case is theft. If we order them from lightest to most difficult. We, of course, see accidents would be first, pure accidents, and then that negligence and lending and borrowing, similar. But then we come to the situation of theft. Certainly, this is much worse, and it's in a case where something is intentional, not just accidental or forgotten, but it is intentional. It's going to take a far greater effort to make things right to get restitution with your neighbor or your brother. Especially as we think of the context here with the Israelites, your neighbor is your brother or your cousin, or something like this. And you certainly want to be on good terms with them. You want to make things right. So we see throughout these passages, what's interesting is we see both in the commandment, thou shalt not steal, but also here in the case laws, we see the validity of private property. There's none of this idea of communal ownership owned by a collective, but rather things are owned by individuals, and if the another person takes them, they're at fault. It's not a free-for-all to take one another's property, but rather people own things, and if you destroy it, if you don't return it, it's your responsibility to pay the cost of replacement. To so have some modern applications. These things have happened to me. If your neighbor has broken your weed whacker or taken your snow shovel, they are required to uh, provide restitution. They They should replace these things. Now, I think we do also have that option, certainly as Christians, to say, okay, I will give mercy on you. You don't have to make restitution. But it is it is fine to have that replaced. That is part of the restitution. But here, as in theft, we have something worse, this criminal case. And so where we see in those other cases that the restitution was ox for ox, sheep for sheep, now in our text we see double restitution. If you kill someone's ox, you have to replace it with more. Actually, in the case of ox, we'll see it's five Sheep is four. But in general, things are double. And I heard some years ago, an economist, probably not a Christian, but an economist, explaining the logic behind this idea of a double restitution. It was very interesting logic. He said that when when you've stolen something from someone, say you steal an object that's worth a $100, not only when you're caught should you repay that $100 to the person, but you've also by your actions, claimed that you don't believe people have the right to $100. Therefore, you've given up your right to your own $100. So your punishment is the returning of the initial money, plus paying it in double. So there is this logical idea of double restitution, and it seems to make some logical sense. Of course, the Bible here doesn't make that argument. It just tells us that there is double restitution it says if a man gives to his neighbor money or goods to keep safe and it is stolen from the man's house if the thief is found he shall pay double if the thief is not found the owner of the house shall come near to god to show whether or not he has put his hand to his neighbor's property for every breach breach of trust whether it is for an ox for a donkey for a sheep for a cloak or for any kind of lost thing of which one says, this is it, the case of both parties shall come before God. The one whom God condemns shall pay double his neighbor. So as I mentioned, that argument of the economist is not made. The reasoning perhaps is similar, that you've given up your right to own that which you've stolen from someone else. But also we see the case here that this is, again, perhaps the argument not made, but this is to prevent further theft. You're not only replacing an ox for an ox that you've stolen, but you're replacing it double. You can imagine if the law was, for every $10 you steal, you have to pay back $10. Well, a thief who gets away with it occasionally is going to be in the positive. But if the law is a double restitution, if the thief is caught only half of the time, then he breaks even. If the thief gets caught 51% of the time, then he's in the hole. It's not an effective job, thievery is not a good occupation. There is to be this punishment of double restitution. Now, in this passage, there's a a bit of a strange phrase that when I read it over, I was, what what does this mean? It says, when you have one of these cases, and it, it seems to be a case where a person claims, hey, you stole from me, and or you destroyed my possessions. The person says, no, I didn't. The text says we should have both parties come before God. Well, in that translation, yes, they should come before God, but the Hebrew actually is Elohim, the plural of God, and it can be used also for judges. So these are the judges that have been uh, set in place by God. And this seems to be what the text is referring to, these, these judges since the Lord does not come down and tell the answer to each of these particular cases, but has set judges in the place to make the decisions. So we find that the judge can order the repayment. But what's also interesting here in verse 9, it tells us that the accuser can lose out and the judge can order the accuser to pay. And you think about how many frivolous lawsuits in our own days would be completely done away with if we had it possible for the accuser to be punished for his accusation. How, and you think about how serious it is if you say someone has stolen from you or someone has murdered someone else or whatever. These are serious accusations that harm them. If we had these biblical punishments, we would have a lot less of those frivolous lawsuits. So as we think about, as some see the biblical law as some sort of uh, strange law for its time, or strange law for our time anyways, it actually in a lot of ways is far superior to what we have today. There is much wisdom in the biblical law. So we had the double restitution in the case of common theft, then also in our passage, we have quadruple restitution, as I mentioned, and quintuple. It says in verse 1, If a man steals an ox or a sheep and kills it or sells it, he shall repay five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. Now, with every sermon I write, I like to read a number of commentaries and read, listen to a number of sermons. And everyone has different ideas of why it is that we have a repayment of four or repayment of five. And I think like much else in this text, it doesn't give us the answer in the text. So some of it's just speculation. Now, there's perhaps better speculation than others. Some specul not all speculation is equal. And there does seem to be somewhat of a logical idea here with the with the four times restitution. If you think that when you steal a sheep, you're to pay double restitution, and that you you give that that which you have stolen back, and then you repay it again, so it's double. Well, now if a person has stolen and killed an animal, they've committed two crimes. So they have to pay for the stealing and have to pay for the killing. And that, in each case, it's double restitution, so that makes four. So that might be what's going on here. But again, the text doesn't tell us exactly. But that's for the sheep. If a person kills steals and kills a sheep, they repay four times, but then we have it five times with an ox. And I'm not able to make any creative, logical guesses as to how they got to five, but others have made a speculative idea, which has perhaps some validity, and that is the explanation that the ox is the most valuable of animals. And this ox is providing for the family in a much greater way. And without that, they've lost out so much more. And it's such a serious loss to them that some additional penalty is, is made to prevent that. So you may consider this in, in our law in, in our modern times if you are ever in a position to vote for a law, perhaps a local law, or if you became a legislator and you had the ability to vote one way or the other, this may give us a precedent for understanding that that it is right at times to have additional penalties for particular cases. So if there's a law against common theft, there is an allowance here for additional laws and penalties for greater thefts. we say grand theft auto or certainly kidnapping or something like this would be a far greater type of theft, which rightly deserves a greater penalty. Now, incidentally, notice that with each of these cases of restitution in this text, we find, I, I think this is so wonderful, again, the wisdom of the biblical law, the restitution is paid to the victim. Right, You were to make it right with the victim. Where, where do we pay our fines today? We don't pay the victim. We pay the state. They take the money. So We have a very, in my opinion, wrong idea there. The victim in our world remains a victim. A lot of times they don't get restitution. And we live in a world with billions of people, and maybe you'll never see that thief again. But if that thief is your neighbor, you want there to be restitution. You want to have things made right. We shouldn't allow people to remain victims. And we see that in our world and our culture today, and sort of my generation or younger, there's this victim mentality. Everyone almost wants to be a victim. Well, we shouldn't want to be victims. We should want restitution. There's also in this passage... Not only this idea that we are to pay the victim, not the government, but notice there's also no long-term prison sentences. Now, I preached on the previous passage at my home church, and there's a a lot of talk there about slavery. Hopefully, we all know that biblical slavery was quite different than this idea that we have of American slavery of our past. There's a lot more safeguards in the biblical view. The way a person became a slave was different. As we see in our text, they sell themselves into slavery when they're not able to pay. Or perhaps a person became a slave when they were a prisoner of war in, the, in those times. So rather than being slaughtered by the enemy, they'd become a slave. So in fact, it was a, it was a system that was more merciful than the nations around them. And the Lord was giving laws here for this time and place when Slavery was existent everywhere. So it is a different situation than we have today, different, or certainly different than the American slavery of the past. But what we notice here is that these punishment doesn't include long prison sentences. We think about this again as when a person in our times, when they are sentenced to prison, they are being punished, but so is everybody else who has to pay for that prison to stay open. And if you've looked into it, it's quite a, quite an expensive thing to keep a prisoner in prison. Well, in biblical times, they didn't have prisons. A person would become a slave to another. But this was also uh, limited. It was limited to six years, I believe, in the case of the Israelite. I'm not, uh, let me see here, yes. Yeah, a Hebrew slave, he shall serve sixth and be let go on the seventh year. So it is not a perpetual slavery, and it's not a situation where a person is languishing in prison, and it's also not a situation where the victim is not getting their due. The victim has this person working for them, paying off that which is due to them, and therefore making restitution so things can be made right. So that is what we have behind all of these case laws. Trying to make restitution to make things right. The general principles behind them. And as we look at these case laws and all the laws of the Old Testament, we want to try to apply them to our times and our world. And I had thought I, that there's, it seems every, every sitcom I've ever watched has the episode where the person going away lets their friend watch their fish or their cat. And what happens? The fish dies. The cat runs away and they try to make things right by replacing it with a similarly colored fish or similarly colored cat. And I asked my home church, what, what is the sitcom I'm referring to? Perhaps you know, but I think every single one, every, probably everyone you've ever seen has that episode. So there is, we want to make restitution, but we don't want to do it dishonestly. In the sitcoms, it's always a switcheroo. It's always a restitution that's not a right restitution. We want to do it rightly. We see in the Old Testament this restitution throughout God's law. And we find that it is based on the idea that God is just. God demands justice. He demands that things be made right. In each of these little cases as well as the big cases. And of course, that big case that always hangs over us, certainly before we know the gospel, and even as Martin Luther said, we're simultaneously sinners and saints when we do know the gospel. That big case that hangs over us is our own guilt, our desire to make it right with God. And how are we going to make restitution with God? How can I pay Him back if I owe quadruple restitution to God for all my sins. I can't even do single restitution or double. We owe the Lord more than we can pay. How can we pay back God? How can we make restitution? And so as with each passage in the Old Testament, we see that this so well carries over to the new that we find that Jesus Christ pays our debts and our behalf he pays what we owe he redeems us and fully restores us to a right relationship with God because this making it right this restitution is not just about the stuff it is about the relationship so we need our relationship restored with God that relationship that was so broken by sin that could only be mended by God Himself, which He did through Jesus Christ. So we read in 1 Peter chapter 5, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. It says there that Christ will restore you. What a Every passage in the New Testament seems to go against the desire to have a works righteousness. Christ himself will restore you. He will do it. No one else. The Greek word there means to make perfect. It's to make things right. God, through Jesus Christ, makes perfect our relationship with him. Restoring that very good condition we had in the garden before we fell into sin. When I was at, I mentioned to some of you that uh, my wife and I met at Brie in Switzerland just over five years ago now we got married, so we met almost six years ago. When I was at Brie, I first had a discussion with someone who denied substitutionary atonement. And I wasn't entirely sure what that meant. But this is the idea, I'm sure you've heard, of Christ being our substitute. That he gets our sins upon him. And yet, in this idea of substitutionary atonement, what we get is heaven. We get the blessings of God. So the substitution sort of both ways. And this idea of restitution. That Jesus paid it all is there in the scriptures. And so I've kept a document on my computer of all these all of these passages that talk about substitutionary atonement for the next time I get into discussion with someone, I say, How do you handle this? The Bible is replete with this idea that it's Jesus who restores us. He's the one who makes it right. Restitution is in Christ alone. Jesus paid it all, not Jesus paid most of it. So three of these verses. Some of the strongest ones as far as our topic here of restitution is very close to the idea of substitutionary atonement. Matthew 20, 28. He gave his life as a ransom for many. He's paying what is owed. John 10, 11, He is the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep, he gives himself. In Colossians 1.20, Jesus, he reconciled all things to himself. He reconciled. He made it right. He gave the restitution that we are unable to do. And so Christ, having restored us to God, having had Christ made restitution for us, we should seek to make it right with others. We don't just stop and and that's the end when we say, the Lord has done it, but therefore, go and do likewise. Make it right with others. So I think, and want you to think, who do you need to forgive? And what relationship should you seek restoration? Who do you, owe, who do you owe restitution to? A couple more specific examples. Certainly, again, I pick on my generation or those slightly younger than me. I'm 39. I thought there's people my age and slightly younger. This question falls to them. Have you lived rent-free for a time on someone else's dime? Your parents, your grandparents. You owe them a restitution. My generation owes owes its parents a lot. We owe restitution. Have you borrowed something from a neighbor and never returned it? Pay it back. And then, it's not always about stuff or money. Have you said that you would spend time with someone and have not done so? Who do you owe your time to? Who do you need to make it right with to spend time with? It could be a great effort. Sometimes it's easier just to send money. But what is needed is You. We need to make restitution with our personal presence. Personal presence is so great. So we come then to our New Testament reading. We had read from Luke chapter 19 where we find Zacchaeus, the tax collector, who had, of course, stolen from many as a tax collector. That he had come to faith in Jesus Christ. And so what did he then seek to do? He didn't seem to just merely stop his thievery, but he went to seek restitution. He sought to, he sought to restore what he had stolen. This is what we read in Luke. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. You think he's maybe read the book of Exodus? Restores it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. So we are certainly to praise the Lord that he has made us right with God, that through Jesus Christ we are restored, restitution has been made. Let us also go and do likewise, restoring to others what belongs to them, while we thank the Lord for what he has done for us through Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Lord, it is so much, it is all, To you, we owe. Jesus, indeed, paid it all. Taking that burden off of us, that guilt that we have, that need for us to pay for our sins and to pay double, to make it right, all of the laws that we have broken. Lord, indeed, we know through Jesus' sermon on the mount That not only have we sinned when we have carried out these sins, but that we have sinned in our hearts when we have thought in these bad ways, when we have coveted, when we have lusted, when we have been angry. In those mental sins, we have indeed committed the sins against the commandments of stealing, of adultery, of murder. And so we need the Lord. We need Jesus Christ to provide us with reconciliation and restitution. So, Lord, we thank you for that gospel that he alone has saved us. That we give you all the glory. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.